Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the way you meet our needs, and we do acknowledge your sovereignty in all things. And we would ask for you to provide for us uh, through human means. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the ministry of protecting and promoting the gospel in Omaha that we get to be a part of. Uh, We're thankful for it on the other side of the globe that we get to be a part of. Uh, Even thinking about tonight as we talk about the gospel in Germany and uh, praying for ministry there and praying for ministry in other places, some that we're directly a part of and some that we're not directly a part of. Um, It's our passion. It's my passion as a pastor that we would not in any way move backward, but we would only move forward. And so please allow um, finances to not get in the way of that but actually be a good expression of our gratitude to you. Uh, Ultimately, you're in charge and you're in control, so we're putting our trust in you. Um, Thank you for opportunities we have to pray, opportunities we have to feel desperate so that we might know and be reminded that you and you alone have to provide. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're in my shoes right now and you're going to preach on... Some text from Luke chapter 17, the gospel according to Luke, the good news about Jesus. You know, what are you going to do to try to hook the audience? Um, what, what can you do to show everybody that this matters, that this is relevant? What kind of story, what kind of thing can you say? Um, consider the fact that we've got very young people in the auditorium now. We've got older people. No, I didn't notice I didn't say very old. We have older people Um, We have people who have all different kinds of backgrounds, educationally, coming from different parts of the world at different times. I mean, think about it. Look around the room, and and I've got to say, okay, I'm going to connect with everybody. It's like, have fun with that. How how in the world is that going to be? How could this be relevant? How could this matter to absolutely everyone in the entire room? I guess the best shot I'm going to give it is to say, We're going to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every question, right? Um, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus now. And guess what? If you're from this part of the neighborhood, that 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 part of the neighborhood, if you're older, young, PhD, MA, BA, high school diploma, no diploma, I mean... You, you name it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about Jesus, and when we talk about Jesus, it matters. It matters for now. It matters for tomorrow. It matters for eternity. It matters in eternity past. It matters to everybody, whether you're young or old, educated or uneducated. And so I can just say we're going to talk about Jesus today. And hopefully, I'm overly optimistic. I'm such an optimist. I'm overly optimistic to know I just connected with everybody. And in a certain sense, you should be on the edge of your seat. Because I'm going to tell you about things as I quote Jesus and as we hear from Jesus. I'm going to tell you about things that will matter for your life. And they will matter for your eternity. And they will matter more than anything you do this afternoon. They will matter more than anything else you do. 
That's a pretty amazing thing. So we're going to talk about things that matter from Jesus as we look at Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 37. We're going to highlight five things about Jesus that matter. They matter for him. They matter for the world. They matter for you. They matter for believers. They matter for unbelievers. Five things about Jesus that matter as we hear him speak during his earthly ministry. Number one, the first thing that matters about Jesus and it matters to you is that Jesus is the, as in the ultimate, he is the the restorer. He is the restorer. And I'll make sure you understand why that matters to you if you're a teenager or matters to you if you're a retiree. Verse 11 says, on the way to Jerusalem, doesn't seem to matter so far because we're not there. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Doesn't seem to matter so far, but let's at least understand the historical picture there. He's passing along between two regions, uh, between Galilee, Samaria. Remember the Samaritans, uh, they're like the cult group compared to the Jews. The Samaritans uh, rejected most of the Old Testament as authoritative. The Samaritans uh, rejected Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple at Jerusalem. They had their own temple, their own mount at Mount Gerizim. They're the cult group. You want to have nothing to do with the Samaritans if you're a faithful Jew. You even get that flavor from Jesus in John chapter 4. Jesus is is not pro-Samaritan theology. Uh, He says salvation is of the Jews in comparison to the Samaritans. So they're the cult group. So he's walking between the, the, the cultic region, if you will, and the believing kind of region, if you will. So just keep that in mind. Verse 12 says, And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. So they're doing what lepers are told to do. They stand at a distance. And they have to speak loudly because it's their moral duty to make sure you don't get too close and perhaps catch what they have. And so they're speaking to Jesus so that He doesn't get too close to them. Then verse 13 says, And lifted up their voices, as they should, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Verse 14 says, When He saw them, He said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were restored. To use my word, they were cleansed. Why did He say, Go and show yourselves to the priests? Because that's what they're supposed to do. They, they knew exactly what He meant by that. Because if you didn't have leprosy any, anymore, or you didn't have a skin disease of whatever kind anymore, you'd go and say, Look at me, Mr. Priest. I'm ready to be accepted back into the worshiping community. I can go to the temple for temple sacrifices. I can participate. I can be a part of the whole thing. I, I, I'm clean now. And they can give you the, you know, the... Whatever they would give you, they would give you the thumbs up so you can now be a part of it. And Jesus says, you go and you show yourselves to the priests. And as they're going, they're cleansed. Jesus has this unique, different, nobody else can do it, ability to restore, to bring restoration to them physically. Now, when it comes to application here, We could say, as some might at first, as you might at first, as I might at first, okay, moral of the story, application is, Jesus is compassionate. Is that true? 
Absolutely it's true. Is it relevant? Absolutely it's relevant. We could say Jesus is merciful because it says he showed mercy. Is that true? Absolutely it's true. I want him to be merciful. You want him to be merciful. And, and that's an important reality. I don't want to take away from that at all. It's just a little too short-sighted. It's a little too short-sighted in that, yes, he shows mercy to them, but he shows mercy to them and he restores them because he's giving us a preview of who he is and what he will do in an ultimate sense. This keeps coming up in Luke. Restoration. Restoration. Reconciling all things. Bringing, uh, fixing the world, if you will. Restoring the broken world. And surely that's the bigger idea of what's going on. They're waiting for the kingdom. We're going to talk about that. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. We're waiting for this kingdom to come. Well, that's when God's ultimate king comes and he restores all things. And that, that's paying attention to the bigger picture here. He's the restorer. He's the prophesied, long-awaited king who will bring restoration in the final sense. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 9 just to give a little flavor of this. And then from Luke, uh, yeah, Luke chapter 9 and then Luke chapter 10. You don't need to turn there. You can if you want. But, but this fits in with a greater um, theme that's going, been going throughout. It says in verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, kind of like what Jesus just did. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The two ideas are together. When the king is there, there's going to be healing because that king brings restoration to the earth, the broken earth. Luke chapter 9, verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel, the good news, and healing everywhere, the gospel of the kingdom. Chapter 10, verse 9 Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. That's why I'm saying it's a bigger idea, bigger picture. He's the restorer king. He's the long-awaited ultimate king. The ultimate saving kind of king. And where he's healing, it's pointing actual, actually to him being merciful, yes, on an individual level, absolutely. But even bigger, he's the one. He's the restorer. I won't quote it, but Isaiah 61 verses 1 following would, would give us a great Old Testament anchor for this happening. And Jesus will say in the gospel accounts, it's talking about me. I'm the one. I'm the restorer. Now, someone recently shared with me um, through someone else, you know how that goes, Something along the lines of, if I hear one more sermon about Jesus being the Messiah, I'm going to, and I forgot what they said. It wasn't nice. I hope you don't feel that way. <laughs> because it's ultimately what matters. He's the restorer. Because it's as if to say, well, that's no relevance in my life. Well, how's your body holding up? How are you emotionally? How are you physically? If you're feeling perfect today and everything's going great, it's just a matter of time. 
as I like to say to the doctor when they remove skin cancer or something like that, tick-tock, tick-tock. It's a great conversation starter. <laughs> Trying for a lead-in for the gospel. It's relevant to all of us. It matters to all of us. You really, 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 really need to know and be reminded again and again and again and that, that, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the pro- that means king. He's the promised king who's the restorer. You so need him to be that, and you've, you've got to need, you've got to have help continuing to remember that. It really doesn't get more relevant than that. We're never going to stop hearing about that. This is a Christian church. We're, we're believers in Christ as the King of Kings, the, the the Messiah of Messiahs, who will restore all things in your pain, whether it be emotional or physical, and and, and relational. In this case, it's physical. He's giving us a taste. He's giving us proof that He is the long-awaited One. And that's so awesome. I, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of uh, faith healers on television. Um, I've been to Benny Hinn Healing Crusade when I lived in Los Angeles just so I could go and watch it. It's very sad watching all of those people who are in wheelchairs and on crutches leave and the buses afterward. The television cameras weren't there for that part. It was sad watching their pastors lead them. I think it's a sham. I think it's shenanigans. I think it's made up. It's heartbreaking. John Wimber, who's no longer alive, Founder of the Vineyard Church Movement, uh, power healing. I've I've watched him and heard him preach from his wheelchair. Not very good marketing. With some kind of like throat cancer, he he could only speak for so long before he had to spray stuff on his throat. I'm not trying to glory in it, but I'm glad I actually witnessed it and saw it. But I, I'm using it as an illustration to say I'm not a fan. But we have to remember that healing really is important. And it really is important in the Bible. And it really is important to Jesus. As a matter of fact, it is vital to him being the Messiah. Of him being the one. If you read Isaiah 61. And it's relevant to us. And we need him to be that. The good news is, he is. He is. And it's as good as done in light of Isaiah chapter 53. So I bring it to your attention because it's relevant to all of us, because it's, it's, it's a drum that is beat throughout the gospel accounts so that we'll know He's the one. It should strengthen your faith in Christ. It should encourage you in your hope. It should also help equip you to be a good ambassador for Christ. He really and truly is the one. Now let's move on. Another thing about Jesus that matters, it mattered then and it matters to us. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I don't mean in a universalism sense. Um, There's a real place called hell. There's a real place called heaven. People really go to both places. I mean it in a biblical sense. Savior of the world, like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish. The whosoever. Savior of the world. 
He's not going to use that verbiage here, but the idea is there. I'll come back to that in a moment. Look at verse 15 with me, if you would. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. One of the, one of the ten lepers, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. There's a clue, Savior of the world. We'll come back to it. He's a Samaritan. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are, uh, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this, this foreigner? Savior of the world, we'll get to it. This foreigner, the Samaritan. And he, he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Fascinating. I don't want to get too caught up in this because it could detract from things, but it is fascinating to think. You've got these ten guys. One's a Samaritan. I mean, what unites people? Hatred, love. In this case, it's disease. They've got to be together. And Jesus says, go to the priest, and they're on their way, all of them. And they're healed. Isn't it interesting, just fascinating, um, as an aside, the Samaritan is told to go see the priest. You know, really, from a technical vantage point, they'll have to go this way, nine of them, and he'll have to go this way. Because his priest is not the same as the other nine priests. text doesn't talk about that, but I just thought, how, how interesting. Uh, how, it's confusing to this guy's worldview, you know. <laughs> One Samaritan, apparently nine Jews. The unexpected one returns. I mean, there's one who sees the gift as not an end in and of itself. And the standout is the Samaritan. But did you notice in verse 19... That Jesus says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has... You could translate the Greek, saved you. Sozoed you, if you want the Greek text. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. Well, they were all made well. But he, he acknowledges there's the one guy that stands out. He, 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 was, he was restored. He, he was made well in an extraordinary sense. Not just in a physical sense. In a spiritual sense, there's the one guy who stands out because he sees Jesus as, as the ultimate, not the gift as the ultimate. One guy, we might say, got saved, got sozoed. He's made well because he's seeing Jesus for who he is. He's connecting the dots and he's believing in him. Something more than physical for the one. That's what I meant when I said Jesus is the Savior of the world. Because so oftentimes, that's what the Bible means. The Bible's not teaching universalism that everyone is saved. Jesus is the Savior of the world in that He's the one and only Savior. Two categories of people in the Bible. Jews and everybody else. Jews and Gentiles. 
I'm going to say the Samaritans are Gentiles because they're not actually Jews. So I'm borrowing from other passages using a, a shorthand kind of title, but making the point, Jesus saves anybody who's going to be saved. Even Samaritans. Even cult member Gentiles who are not associated with the right religion, associated with a perversion of it. Jesus saved him. That's relevant to you too. He's the one and only Savior. And he saves even the, what we might consider, worst of people. Yeah. He's that kind of Savior. He's showing Himself to be that kind of Savior. That's good news for me. Both saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We'll talk about that tonight when we look at Galatians, whether it's Jew or Gentile world. Let's move on to the third thing that matters about Jesus, and it matters to you, and it matters to me. Number three, Jesus is the King. Let me put it a different way. Jesus is the King of the kingdom. Jesus is the King of the kingdom. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Messiah means anointed one, literally, but Messiah is king. The king is anointed to be the king. And so that's why we say Christ. That's the New Testament word. It's Christ. Old Testament word is Messiah. What we mean is king. Sometimes Jesus is called the king of kings because he's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate king in that he's the, the ultimate king over every other king of the earth. But he's the ultimate king in the sense of there have been kings who have come before him. Like throughout, the, like King David, we heard from Psalm 5 this morning. But he's the ultimate king because he's the one who will restore all things. And he will be the savior. And, and, and he's the one we've been waiting for and anticipating. He, he's the one. He's the king of the kingdom. This is going to be fascinating. I think you'll enjoy this part. Look at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You know, flashing arrows, flashing signs. You know, you guys want to say, where's the kingdom? When's it going to come? Kingdom, 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 kingdom. We love to talk about the kingdom. Where's the kingdom? When's the kingdom going to come? What are the signs of the kingdom? Jesus, give us some insights about the kingdom. Hello? You know? The King James translated this. The kingdom is in you. Some of, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Um, others do it as well. In the margin, it says another way to uh, translate the Greek text would be the kingdom of God is in you. So a lot of times, you know, Greek is not this mysterious, magical kind of thing where uh, you, you always know exactly how it should be translated. That's why I'm thankful for those notes that we have sometimes that say it could be translated this way. And, and the best way to make those determinations would be context. Our context, I think, would argue for it not to be the kingdom of God is in you, but the kingdom of God is among you. How can I say that? Because of his audience. He's talking to the Pharisees. I don't think Jesus is saying, don't you know, Pharisees, false teachers? The kingdom of God is inside you. So I would argue that it's a better way to take it. The kingdom of God is among you. 
kingdom of God is among you because in verse 20, he's talking to the Pharisees in particular. Why do I have to mention that? Why do I have to belabor that? Probably don't need to per se, but some of you might find it helpful or interesting. But the idea is he is the king of the kingdom. Like many of us, we, 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 before you know it, put the emphasis in the wrong place. Is the kingdom important? Absolutely. But a lot of times we get really focused on something important and before you know it, we have ignored and forgotten the most important. And that seems to be what's going on here. The most important part about the kingdom is the king. And you know something's gone wrong when you're standing in front of the king and you say, King, tell us about when the kingdom will come. You know? It's not a perfect illustration, but sometimes weddings can get this way in a certain sort of sense. It's like the pomp and the circumstance and the wedding and the planning and what are we going to do for the rehearsal and rehearsal dinner and who's going to be there and what kind of dresses are we going to have and what about the flowers? Oh, the flowers. And what about the cake and the different kinds of cake? We have a bride cake. We have a groom cake. We've got all the decorations. We've got to have the special place. We've got to plan the weather, you know, and consult a medium to figure out what's really going to be. I mean, it's, it's like we'll just go, we'll spend tons of money supposed to be about a man and a woman <laughs> standing before their friends and God <laughs> being uh, joined in holy matrimony. It's pretty simple. Sometimes to the point where even the bride and groom don't get along because it's all about the wedding and it's not about the marriage. Not a perfect illustration, but it works on a certain level. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. They were, they were, they were, they were eschatologians. Eschatos, the end. Eschatology, the study of the end. Instead of being theologians, Christian theologians, they're, they're, they're eschatologians. It's all about the details of what's going to happen in the future, and they're totally consumed with that. Maybe you've had a conversation with someone, whether it's about the end or some other issue, and you're talking about the glory of Christ and the gospel and some aspect of it and who Jesus is, and they like bring up something totally unrelated. And you kind of go, what? It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird for the Pharisees. They're missing the whole boat. They're missing the whole point of it all. That Jesus is the king of the kingdom. When John the Baptist wondered if Jesus was the king of the kingdom, it says this in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. I'm the king of the kingdom. You know it by my actions. You know it by my actions. It's not about signs other than signs that He really is the one. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't have anything to say about the future. He does. I like the way the Bible gives Him both ands. Not in a contradictory sense, but you know what? 
I'm the priority. I'm the king. The kingdom of God is among you because the king is among you. And now I can move on and talk about the future. So since you brought up the future, let's get the future sorted out. Let's move on to another thing that matters to everyone here. It mattered to them. It matters to Jesus. Number four, Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to suffer. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, so it's not the hostile Pharisees now, it's the disciples, the days are coming when you, you the disciples, will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That's a, that's a, that's a king um, title for Jesus from the Old Testament. The Son of Man, and you will not see it. So let, now, now that you brought it up, let's talk about the future. And I know you disciples will, will want it to be coming, that, that, that full manifestation of, of that coming kingdom that's going to last forever. I know there's going to come a time when you're going to be wanting that to be the case. Now, by the way, when would you really, really long for that? I mean, I tend to say, Lord, how long, oh Lord, on good days or bad days? <laughs> on good days, I'm like, forget you, O oh Lord, I'm having a good time, you know? Hopefully not, you get the idea. When things are bad, I think that's what Jesus is getting at. You disciples, there's going to come a time when you're going to say, where is it? Verse 23. And they will say, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them, Jesus says. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. What's He mean there? Don't, don't, don't follow those future snoopers. Okay? Don't follow those date setter, sign waivers. Don't do it. When that day comes... It'll be like lightning from one side of the sky to the other side of the sky. It'll be obvious to everybody. It won't be some secret secret. I got a secret. It'll be obvious. Don't listen to their tricks. It'll be unmistakable. Verse 25, but first, he must suffer. He's talking about himself. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Helping them sort things out. You're going to want that to come. Can't come. Can't come until. Don't be tricked. Now, why does he need to suffer and why does he need to be rejected? Well, we know. We know that, that in order for God's sovereign purpose, for, for, for God's purpose of the ages, for God's sovereign purpose to, to unfold, that has to happen. Right? Uh, not to mention the fact that in order, in order for us to be forgiven, we have to have the just for the unjust. We, we have to have a substitute. We have to have an atonement. We have to have Him for atonement or we, wouldn't have forget, we don't have forgiveness. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. We've got to have that. So that's why it has to happen that way. By the way, just some passages you might want to jot down in your margin. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. I'm going to give you some passages just so you can appreciate and <sighs> appreciate and, and, and enjoy the fact that this is all according to plan. And if it was all according to plan, then everything is all according to plan. It's God's saving purposes that include us as individuals. It must happen this way. It's not plan B. It must happen this way. How about Acts 2.23? This Jesus, Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. 
the crucifixion. Humans are accountable for doing it, but it's according to the definite plan of God. It's no wonder Jesus said this must happen because this is part of God's perfect purpose. I might even like Acts 3 better. Hopefully that's not a sin for me to say that. Acts 3.18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, his Messiah, his King would suffer, he thus fulfilled. No, I don't like it better, but I like it just as much. This is what had to happen according to even the Old Testament. Acts 13, verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, Old Testament prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. Grand purpose is marching on. It must happen. Or how about Jesus in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two? For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Just remember that when you read your Bible. Jesus is the suffering substitute. This is the plan. He's central to the plan. It's going to be this way. How is that relevant to your life and to my life? Well, because we need atonement. We need to understand who Jesus is. And we need to be reminded, reminded that this Jesus born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph as parents is the one. Your faith, if it's in Him, is not misplaced. He's the one who had to suffer. We could look at other passages. We won't. Number five, finally. The thing that matters about Jesus to Him, to us, to believers, to unbelievers... Number five, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. By saying the kingdom of God is among you, he's not saying, and that's all there is. If you miss me, you miss the whole point. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the story. He is coming again. Verse 26 says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Again, that messianic king title, Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Is there anything wrong with marrying? Anything wrong with eating? Anything wrong with drinking? We know the answer is no. Contextually, they're doing it in defiance against God and His ways, ignoring God, the God of Noah. It's in that sense. The day of the Son of Man will be like in the days of Noah. Everybody's ignoring God, stiff-arming God, don't need God. Second coming is going to come at a time like that, is what he's saying. They refuse to acknowledge God, even in those things that they're doing. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Again, those are fine things, but not when you're living in denial of the, the giver of those things. The one is to be glorified by doing those things. Verse 29, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. A 
contrary to verse 22, where the disciples will want that to come because it will mean relief for them, those who are living in denial of this God will find it awful and terrible. Likened to judgment days of old. And isn't it interesting that the original audience here would be Pharisees and disciples. The big talkers about the kingdom. Big talkers about Messiah coming. Well, if you don't know who I am, Jesus is getting at, then the day of the Son of Man, the day of Messiah, is going to be terrible for you. going to be awful for you. Verse 31 says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. We're not going to take the time to go there, but that's similar verbiage to what Jesus used in Luke 9, verses 23 and 27. And he talks about the second coming there. Coming with his holy angels. And in that same passage, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Very similar kind of verbiage. The point there being, and now I think the point again is, when that day comes, you've got to be on my side. When that day comes, you, you've got to have me as, you, as, your, as your protector, savior, or it's going to be terrible. Not just we talk about Messiah, but you actually are showing you belong to Messiah by what you do. So a key to interpreting that would be Luke chapter 9. He's going to come again. And, and, and what you do with Him makes all the difference in the world. You need to be real disciples. That's relevant to us. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? Where will they be taken? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Gulp. There was a time when Christians interpreted this as the taken will be when you're raptured. Even people who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture don't use this passage anymore. It's, it's an embarrassment. You don't want this kind of rapture. <laughs> okay. You want a good kind of rapture where you're taken to be with the Lord. Here you're taken where the vultures are. He's not talking about the other one here. He's not talking about going to be with the Lord. He's talking about, where will they be taken? They'll be taken to a place of suffering, a place of death. You don't want to be like those people. And he's already, in our context, showed us how you avoid that. You avoid that 
by being a true disciple, truly belonging to Jesus, truly embracing Jesus for who He is. When Jesus comes back, when He returns, and we don't need to... In this text, it doesn't try to splice it all out and look at it from different angles and different aspects. It's just very simply given to us. When He comes back, it's going to be good for some and not for others. What's the difference? Those who see Him as Messiah, those who see Him as Restorer, those who see Him for who He claimed to be, It's what they've been longing for. No more suffering. But those who don't see Him for who He claimed to be and who He really is, it'll be the worst thing ever. And they'll wish they never talked about what are the signs of His coming. That's what He's getting at. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, this should encourage you and affirm you in believing Him. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, it shouldn't affirm you at all. It should cause you to see your need for Christ, to see your need for a Savior, to embrace the one who can rescue you from His judgment to come. Jesus came as a gracious Savior, saving Jew and Gentile, quote-unquote good people and bad people, Trust in Him and only in Him. Father, thank You for our time this morning as we talk about things that matter forever. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You that He is the King, which means He's going to come and He will restore all things. Thank You that while He was here on earth, He gave us a a foretaste, a preview. He didn't just come making empty professions. He didn't just come boasting and making huge, grandiose claims. That He demonstrated that He indeed is the One. Thank you that he loved the Samaritan. Thank you that we can identify with those uh, like the Samaritans. May the men and women and boys and girls here in this place today find themselves resting and trusting in Jesus before it's too late to. In Jesus' name, amen.